0: You're listening to the Empowered Divorce Podcast, where women support women who have experienced betrayal, trauma, and abuse, and are now facing divorce. Here, you'll learn tools and concepts to help guide your journey from a place of empowerment by trusting yourself and becoming the chooser in your life. I'm your host, Amy Woolsey. Thanks for joining. Well, hello, hello, my amazing listeners. All year, you have been listening to brave, courageous women share their stories of empowerment as they navigate the trail of abuse and divorce. Women who are practicing every day just like you to heal and thrive. It has been my hope that you have not felt alone in this journey, that you have felt less crazy and on this island of doom, because really, you are among the most brave, amazing women I know. My best friend Alana and I say all the time that our favorite people are those who have walked through the hellfire of betrayal because those who take their healing seriously are the most authentic women we know. We don't have time in our life for picking anymore. Today, I am thrilled to have joining with us one of the most authentic women I have met. We became fast friends, and I am proud to rub shoulders with her professionally as well. Thera started coaching 11 years ago and quickly realized that most of her clients were experiencing similar challenges in their lives as her. In fact, many of her clients experienced such high levels of gaslighting-induced anxiety that they were often misdiagnosed as having anxiety disorders. Can you relate? She has connected the dots that gaslighting is the cause of their anxiety, not a mental health issue. So after a decade of deconstructing gaslighting, Over 8,000 hours of coaching clients and multiple trainings along the way. Sarah is a trauma informed coach and a thought leader and expert in the field of gaslighting. She sits on the board of AppSax and has incredible influence there. I have greatly benefited from her work, as well as my clients who have taken her program. And then we work together through her program, and they are becoming experts in their own lives on gaslighting. I have asked Sarah to come share her story on Women Supporting Women episode because her story is one that many don't speak out about. Her story starts like this. January 21st, 2011, the FBI showed up at my house. Nothing could have prepared me for what happened next. I know many of you listeners and those who have reached out to me and many I work with share Sarah's story in many ways, but have remained silent who don't hear people talk about this part of their story. And you too are not alone. I want to encourage all of you to listen as it's not only riveting, but this is why Sarah does what she does and has deconstructed gaslighting to the level that she has because you will hear in her story the covert and overt methods, techniques, and tactics used to keep her in the dark for so many years. And I think a lot of you will be able to relate. I know I can. So trigger warning. This is not an episode to play in the car with children. I do not edit out any language in this episode as we are dealing with a level of trauma that absolutely fits the authentic language that we use. Okay, enough of me talking. Here is my conversation with the Sarah Morales. But Sarah, really, thank you for joining. So for those who, and your links and everything is going to be obviously in my show notes, and I'm really excited because I'm going to hold you to this. You're going to come back and talk to me about gaslighting, And <laughs> because of your personal experience that you're going to talk about today, you have dedicated your time, your heart, your energy to deconstruct gaslighting to better help those who are impacted by it. And I, I'm with you in our guess of our age and the timeline of when we had our D-Day and what we experienced, mm-hmm. there wasn't information out there. And mm-hmm. so... Just like you've said so many times before, part of your expertise is your lived experience. Mm -hmm. And that is so important. There are a lot of professionals, as we both know, that do this work. But one of the things that draws me to you and your work and why I think it is so unique and specific, like what I do, I'm, yes, betrayal partner sensitive, betrayal trauma, addiction, recovery, yada, but divorce for those who have experienced this,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: yours is so tailored to gaslighting. And because of your betrayal experience, someone who has been addicted to pornography beautifully <laughs> <laughs> gives language to that experience as well. So, my listeners, I know, I know, I know, I know you are going to want her program. You were going to want to dive into everything gaslighting that Sarah has to offer. I am so excited because Sarah, you and I are going to put this fun. We'll set together for our divorce ladies. Yes. Your program that is coming up next year. So Mm, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Sarah, I'm just gonna let you take it because I trust you. I'm just gonna let you take it. Okay.
1: Well, I think what's really important to me when I think about my story is similarly to how people find me, right? We usually think about starting with our D Day, right? Like that's the part that I need to talk about because that's when I realized that my world was turned upside down. Right. But really, when people start working with me and my own work myself, as I realize that, in my opinion, I was set up to be a victim for for extreme gaslighting because of the way that I was raised. Not necessarily my parents, but my culture, our time. Right. We're both like what, late 40s, whatever. We're very similar in age. So so for me, the first thing I would love to say is I as I share my story and then when I come back, right, like one of the missions that I have around gaslighting and why I've my trademark is deconstructing gaslighting is as somebody who has studied it for over a decade, I've wanted to destigmatize it because a lot of people are afraid to take a look at it because of the link that there has been, and rightly so, to narcissists or sociopaths because that gaslighting is their favorite tool but it it's not a foregone conclusion right i think it's an important thing to look at and to understand because it's such a crucial part of finding ourselves again i was having a fun time last night like thinking about some of my podcast episodes that i'm going to do in in 2024 and i wanted one of the things i want to talk about is how the focus of the work that i do around gaslighting it's meant to help people find their own self-control again. And I don't mean self-control as I'm not going to eat that piece of chocolate or the donut. It's like <laughs> self-control as far as like self-empowerment. And I was playing around with different titles and one of them was, this is a story of control. Do you know what that's from? It, For those of you who might not know, that's the way Janet Jackson's song, Control, starts. <laughs> so, so I was, <laughs> thank you for laughing so much. Yes. I love Gina Jackson. So, so I just wanted to start with that, right? Like we can laugh and we can have fun while we talk about these really super serious things. And that would be the first thing that I would want people to know. You don't have to be afraid of diving into the hard work that is around gaslighting because the result is a trust in yourself. I know for me, that was the end result. I want to before I go into my story. <laughs> I want to say the end result of the work that I have done is a trust in myself like I had had never had in before all of this had happened. So that's why I'm so passionate and believe that everybody should do this work. Honestly, I don't. Yes, partners, but I think everybody needs to do this work. So my story.
0: Did you want to say something before I go? To no, keep going. Okay. I just aim, okay. and people have okay. to watch on YouTube. <laughs> they got to watch because um, I'm like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, so we're not gonna really talk a whole lot about gaslighting. That's another day. I just want to talk about me, about my story. I grew up super conservative Christian in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt. So very, even though I grew up in a big city, like people, big, big ish, Milwaukee, one, probably one of the biggest cities in Wisconsin, if not the biggest. But still, it's not like L.A. or New York or something. But still, pretty, pretty big city. So. They wouldn't have thought that I would have been super naive, but I always tell people like until my D-Day, when I was like my mid thirties, I was probably the most naive, like mid 30 year old. I didn't know what pot smelled until probably 10 years ago. (laughs) Like, like, I didn't know that's what it was, right? Like I was the, for a lot of reasons, I'm not going to necessarily unpack today. I was the rule follower. I was the girl who was going to get straight A's and be in varsity sports and be in missions. Because I was that overachieving, I've got to be the best. I I just got to, I got to do it. And again, a lot of reasons why. And so that led me to to join missions straight out of high school. I didn't go to college. I went to missions because that's what super Christians do. And <laughs> do and that's well. where I met. That's where I met my ex. That's where we met. Was We were both missions, part of an organization called Youth with a Mission. And we were based in California. And he was four years older than me. And he was like, for those who don't know this world, you live on these, what they call bases. Like think of a military base, right? Like you have these places of operation around the world and you'd have staff that live on base, right? And he was like the bachelor that everybody loved, right? And and everybody wanted, they would pair, it's like what people do, like when you're bored and just pair up who's gonna end up together and all that kind of stuff. Everybody wanted to end up with him. I never thought it was it would be me, especially because, like, we would have these exotic people come in. And I remember one time there was this Brazilian girl that came in, and she was so beautiful. And they actually, like, low-key dated for a while. And everybody was like, they're going to end up married and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't have great self-esteem at that point. Although, honestly, I didn't care. I was having the time of my life. I really was. I was having fun. I was traveling the world. I was doing cool stuff. <clears throat> so fast forward, we get married. I'm going to skip, right? Cause like I could talk for an hour just about my story. I'm trying to hit. So (laughs) I'm like key points, right? Cause I'm trying to establish who he was versus who I was was as very smart, right? Like I could have gone to college for a number of reasons, probably on some full scholarships says very smart, very independent, right? Like I didn't, I think I was living my best life. Didn't care. Right. And then (laughs) I started to fall for this guy and it seemed like he wanted to be with me too, right? So we went from friends to engaged in less than six months and we're married six months later. This is very fast. And that's wasn't shocking then because it was part of the culture. It's what you do when you're Christian or other religions where you're not supposed to have sex before you get married. And you're in your early to mid-20s and that's what you really want to do. Let's just be real. Like, yep, that's one of the main reasons why you get married so fast. God told me this was my person, and we're not supposed to have sex, but we want to have sex. So let's get married fast, <laughs> right? Uh huh. I wish y'all could see her face. I <laughs> so, anyways, and me being the the good girl that I was, my my husband was not just the first person I had sex with; he was the first person I kissed. So I was the rule, like I said, I was the rule follower. Um, now I'm going to fast forward for the next 14 years. When I married him, he was a youth pastor. And right before we got married, there were red flags that I didn't understand how to see were red flags. I remember there being a story about a girl in the youth group that he was in charge of, like some some scandal that he was able to explain away, and all of this kind of stuff. And I was twenty two, like I was barely twenty two. I didn't I didn't know. Of course, I'm going to trust the guy who had been the missionary and was now the pastor versus this crazy girl, right? That there was some story about. But everybody loved him. Everywhere he went, he rose to, like, first in missions, right? Like, he was, like, over the whole of the West Coast of the United States for this specific, like, ministry within Youth with a Mission, right? So he loved. He was loved. He was attractive. He was intelligent. He was charismatic, right? And here I am, this 22-year-old, like, thanking my lucky stars that he chose me because he could have had his pick of anybody and he chose me right so again i'm i'm showing you like the dynamic and the power differential which i think is really important to talk about and and when we're trying to make sense of how i can't tell you how many clients i've had who have come to me and say how did i end up here i used to be this i used to be that it's this is one of the aspects that you don't really see until you start to deconstruct things right there was a huge power differential between the two of us right so when you when you enter into a relationship that and you have your doubts about things and then you come to your person and you ask you tell them about those doubts and then they say something that is contrary to what your doubts are you're like well it must be me
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. right be-
0: well that yes and I just sorry feminist in me is yeah, yeah this is all this is also part of our culture as women, correct to, to doubt ourselves, especially correct. when and I was married to someone who was four years older, four mm-hmm. and a half years older too. And so you have that dynamic. He's older, he's yeah. wiser, he's more mature, he knows better, he's the man, he's the patriarch, he's da da da, da, mm-hmm. da head of house. So you mm-hmm. have that dynamic too. Yes.
1: Yes, culturally and religiously. We had a like, double whammy, right? So, yeah. So for the next 14 years, it was repetition of the same thing. We went from youth pastoring to associate pastoring in different places throughout the, con- throughout the country, mostly California. And again, everywhere we went, it was the same dynamic. People loved me, too. I'm not going to I'm not trying to say like people didn't love me, too. They did. But for him, it was like, almost, like, oh, let me like bow at your feet because you're so amazing and the way you preach and you're an anointed man of God and all of these kinds of things. And again, what that did for me is when I was miserable or wanted to challenge things that didn't feel right or seem right to me, I thought, who am I to challenge God's chosen man or whatever it was? Right. So let's fast forward. I do think we need to, I'm trying to. Skip through and highlight things. I have an older sister who struggles with a few mental illnesses. And she had a a boy when I was 16, and he was the first little human being that I ever loved right before I had my own kids. I was 16. I think I said that. And he is now eight or nine, and she had struggled raising him. And so she asked if we would raise him. Right. Yep. The pastor and the pastor's wife. What better choice to raise your child than the pastor and his wife, who have two young little kids well, one and one on the way at this point of kids of their own. And and I adored him and I love my sister. And I didn't want him to suffer and I didn't want her to suffer. And even though I had some red flags at that point, I said yes. Right. Because I didn't have I have any proof. This is one of the things I like to talk about in the stuff that I do. Right, like how we've been—you want to start getting feminist. We've been told as women to not trust our own bodies, and a variety of reasons. So the only thing we trust is our brain. And so when we can't have proof of things, we dismiss it and we gaslight ourselves and dismiss our own gut. Right? Yep. I can't tell you how many ways it it did that because of that. I had to have that. I had to have my proof. Yeah. So I said yes. So we moved to Wisconsin for a brief bit because that's where I'm from. That's where she lived. And we began the process of incorporating my nephew into our life. And then after we spent about a year doing that, we moved back to California. So now we're gonna fast forward. Let's see, that happened right when my youngest was born. So we're gonna fast forward six more years. So at this point now, we're married for 14 years. January 21st. I remember because it was the day after my oldest's birthday. I had a a birthday party to do that night. <clears throat> the FBI, oh, trigger warning. I'm not going to go into detail, but the subject matter itself is triggering. I just want to put that out there. I take my kids to school. I come back home. Like it's the school drop off. So you don't get out of the car. I don't even have my bra on yet. <laughs> right? It's like one of those things. I like, <laughs> rolled out of bed, took the kids to school, got home. And I hear we have a dog, or we did have a dog at that time. And I heard the dog barking outside, and I was like, Why the dog barking? And I went to go look in the window because <clears throat> it was abnormal for the dog to be barking. She was in Barker. And I, I saw FBI agents in my yard, the full like vest FBI guns, right? And they come to our door. I should explain, we're, we're living, we were lit. <laughs> <laughs> My ex was going to seminary while this was happening, by the way. So we were, he was unemployed. Well, maybe, no, he was working at the restaurant that I was working at. But other than that, he was not pastoring at the moment. He was going to Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. It's one of the preeminent Southern Baptist seminaries in the country. And that was in the Bay Area. Like
0: on a compound or something like that. We were,
1: Yeah, we were living on a property that we were renting alongside of his parents, his mom and his stepdad. They lived in the main house with my nephew, who was, I think, in his early twenties when this happened. I'd have to know, probably late teens. Anyways, either like nineteen twenty somewhere around there. I don't do the maths anymore, but yes, they lived in the main house, and then there was like a pool house that was we we like transformed the garage into like our living room, and it was it was a little bit of a hot mess, but it was the only way we could afford for him to be going to seminary. And us live. So yes, the guy comes to our pool house, knocks on the door, and hands me a warrant. Well, first he asks if we have any guns, I'm like, I think there's like a BB gun in the main house or something like that. And said, That's all we have. And so they went to go look for it or whatever. Somebody went to go look for it, and he's like, okay, so here's the warrant. And I started to read it, and it said underage pornography on it. And I'm like, what the? F-? And honestly, I actually initially got scared that that it was about my nephew because he had been dating. A girl that was, I think, under 16, like it wasn't a big, huge difference, but I think like she turned 16 some what, couple months after they started dating. I don't remember what it was, but they had been sexting, Right. And technically, this is what a lot of people don't know <laughs> That's why I'm looking at such a hard ass. You got to tell your kids if they're under 18 and they text a picture of themselves. It is considered child pornography. Like you cannot do that. Right. So, anyways, I was worried but that that's it was where my, your
0: brain went. Your brain That's where
1: my brain went. Would never like go to husband. Never. Never in fourteen years I had never found any shred. I think once I found here's a little the trigger warning for, for just a tiny little bit of detail. So a lot of my exes acting out was the same sex. Don't have a problem with that necessarily, but it was confusing for me when I found one time I found pornography that was of someone that was male. And I thought, oh, shit, I did something like wrong here. Like I better like I wasn't like, oh, this is my this is my husband's porn stash that I accidentally happened on. Right. I wasn't going to be in my frame of thought. So so that was the only thing I had ever found. And as far as like pornography. And then one time I found a parking ticket for somewhere in San Francisco that hadn't gotten paid and it didn't make sense. I didn't Google it because I still wasn't I wasn't like my husband was going to seminary in the Bay Area, so he had to go into town for something. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't think anything. I'm not like your logical conclusion when <laughs> you've chosen to marry somebody and an oh, they're also a pastor, right? You know what he's probably doing? He's probably visiting a bathhouse
0: that I he was doing, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's No, I'm so glad you're saying this. And we're even slowing this whole experience, this, this D-Day down because- What I'm hearing you say that is so common is that when you go into these relationships, it is not in our mindset to look at this person as the perpetrator. No. Yeah. And so, so many women, when you do find this stuff out, it's like, what did I miss? What is wrong with me? Why am I? Why am I? And I just love that you're sharing this because I'm hoping that those listening can really just give themselves some compassion. Like you are. And I do know you. You are brilliant. You are smart. You are educated. And how many women have you and I both worked with who are yeah. smart and brilliant and educated? Yeah, who are not stupid. No,
1: in who fact, I'm not stupid. I work with a lot of nurses and other therapists as my clients, not like colleagues as my clients, yeah. right? So, so they're like, how can? If you, yeah, those, those are some just, of the people that we often esteem as some of the most intelligent. And, no, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Does not matter because it's not about intelligence. Right. It's not about that at all. So anyways, I didn't think it was for him. I thought it was for my nephew. The FBI had separated all of us and into different rooms. And then I'm like, can I get my brawn? Let me get my bra Like, <laughs> And then and then they start bringing us all into the main house. They're like, we're going to bring you all together and start doing some t- blah, blah, blah. And I look around. They're like, OK, everybody's here. We can start giving you our some general announcements about how things are going to need to go. And I'm looking around and my husband was gone. And I'm like, hold on, my my husband isn't here. We can't. And and he was like, ma'am, your husband surrendered. Like he surrendered himself. And I I was like, I tell people, have yeah, those those who know the Princess Bride, there's this moment in the Princess Bride where he's like, the sound of despair or something like that. I can't remember what it is right now, but it's like the the sound that Wesley makes when he's getting the life drained out of him. It's like, I did that in that moment, like figuratively and literally because I didn't, I was in such a state of shock. I, I joke around and I said this once on my friend Jenny's podcast, but it's like I was floating like around the rest of the day. It's like my feet weren't actually on the ground, right? Because you're just everything that you thought was true in your world has just been obliterated and then they started coming for me a little bit one of them started interviewing me and at this point y'all even though they had taken away even though they had said that my husband had surrendered I was like you don't understand who my husband is he's a pastor he's in seminary you've got the wrong guy I really thought they had the wrong I thought they had messed up somehow I really did of course I didn't, because he was a quote-unquote good dad. Again, there were there was nothing that I could have pointed to other than my own miserableness in my marriage. <laughs> There's nothing I could point to, which I thought was something wrong with me, right? So they started questioning me, basically, how could I not have known that this is what he was doing? And this was what was on his computer. And I'm like, I don't go on his computer. It's his work computer. I'm a waitress, and I'm doing this other side job, whatever. But anyways, all that to to say, that was was my D-Day experience. Now, I initially, within that first day, I'm going to tell you, and I don't know if I've talked about this ever before, I was done. And that first moment, I was done. I was like, I can't, this is a person that I never want to, all of these, I was done. And then he was in Fresno County Jail. (laughs) And it was just a horrible, if anybody knows anything about jails in this country, it's one of the worst. And I'm not going to go through all of the drama of that weekend, but when he was released pre-trial something or other, when he was released, he was supposed to have been released at a certain time and we didn't hear anything from him. I really thought he killed himself. Mm -hmm. I really did. I thought he was so ashamed of what he had done and all of these things. Of course, I didn't know at that point that he was a sociopath and he would never think that way about himself. But what I thought in the moment, right? Like I thought he was, was so ashamed that he left, was released, left, and went and killed himself. And so something in that, what happened in me in that moment shifted. And I was like, no, this is not okay. This has to be on my terms. I get to say when this is done. And I also believed that... I, and that moment that that God had talked to me and asked me if I would be willing to live out a redemption story. And I was like, well, at okay. that point, yes, just, yes, we, we want to. St- like,
0: mm-hmm. Just want to sit with that a minute. Yeah. Yeah. But first of all, I can relate, but yeah. that God wanted you to live out a redemption story. Yeah. Which meant you had to do what? Well, everybody's redeemable, including my
1: my husband at that time who had technically distributed underage, that was Mm -hmm. the, that was the crime he was being charged for, just about sharing it really, but he wasn't a producer and all of this kind of stuff. But yeah, no, it was right. Like it was one of these things where I fully believed like he was going to be that guy that had this stellar redemption story and all of these things. And he was going to work with the addicts and I was going to work with the partners instantly. Right. Because you have to understand, I first started doing like being a part of student leadership as in in the church when I was probably fourteen. I'm like thirty five or something like that when this happens. It's twenty years of living in the mindset of how do I turn this into something that can be used by God? Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: without a fucking care about I... my own well-being or my kid's well-being or my safety or my kid's safety. I'm not trying to, listen, I don't like to try to ruffle people's feathers about their spiritual beliefs. And we have to do better about questioning things instead of being unquestioning, right? I don't think we're meant to just take things as they are and as, especially as we've been told they are, and especially us as women. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff that we've been told has been to enable unhealthy marriages to stay intact and the men get away with a bunch of shit.
0: Yes. Oh. Amen, sister. And <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I slowed this down because yeah. when we do that, we are essentially, and this is the the paradox of it all, is that you then have to let go, discount, disconnect with your own agency. Yes. In order to fulfill some supposed higher experience, whatever, right? At your yes. expense. At your expense to then Feel and choose and think for yourself. Yeah. Which is why it's not okay, which is why it's not actually, quote, holy.
1: Yeah. Anyways,
0: yeah. go ahead.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've unpacked that moment and people are going to believe what they're going to believe about that moment, but I don't actually believe that God spoke to me in that moment. I believe my brain was doing things to try to help me cope. It's I really do.
0: Part. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, right. It's, it's our spiritual bypassing. And, yep. and did it, did it help me then? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm not going to, I don't shame former Sarah, like my former version of myself. She was, it's my Angela quote. That's my life quote. She was doing the best she could with what she knew. Yep. She was doing the absolutely best that she could with what she knew. She was trying to love her people. She was trying to love her God. She was like all of these things. She was trying her very, very best. And I don't fault her. And we need to, the second part of that quote, <laughs> right? The The actual quote is, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better, right? That's the part that we can't leave behind. Like we've got to question things and start to learn about so that we can know better and do better. The next year, I'm just going to try to zip through the next year, Um, was a masterful show by my ex. I sat with him and I said, "I cannot do this again. Right? Like you have got to figure your shit out." I, yes, I had, I had said I would do this. I would give him a chance. And listen, a lot of these, a lot of these guys have super huge sob stories, and that's where we have to watch out for the empathy trap and falling prey to the victim. My ex had been kidnapped when he was five years old. That was something. Like, like hello. What kind of mean, uncaring, unempathetic, unloving person says, oh, sucks to be you. You got kidnapped. We're like, no, of course, that was something that he used to hook my empathy and say, I deserve another chance because I was kidnapped. And of course, I was going to end up in the place that I ended up because of all of the things that had been happening. So, of course, I lowered my bar of safety, of needs for safety. And raised the bar for redemption and reconciliation over safety. That's what I did. Yeah. It took me a while to see that, but that's exactly what I did. But I was at least aware enough in that moment to say, I cannot do this again. It will break me. It will absolutely break me if, the, if I go through this again, because I had loved that guy with everything that I had. I really did. I gave him my Everything. And so I was like, I cannot do this again. You will, you must do this and do this well and right and all. And he listened because the good little sociopath that he was. Okay, so this is how I need to change my game. (laughs) Like, right. And I'm telling you what, for the next year, the only thing that I had to do was like order shit for him because he couldn't get on the internet. Like, he was not allowed on the computer. That was my reality. I was living, y'all, let's get this picture. I could not be in the same home as my like from the day that he was arrested until the day we were divorced. We never lived in the same home ever again, even though it was four. Four years after discovery, before I was finally divorced, no, five years. Anyways, I have to do the math, but he wasn't allowed to. He was not allowed to be around anyone under 18. He had an ankle monitor around his ankle. He had to give plans for a week at a time of where he was going to go. And I was trying to figure out how to envision a future with that kind of life. Like concession after concession after concession. It's maddening. What
0: does that do to you? I can't imagine having to try and figure out a future with children when this is what your future is going to be like. Right. So one of the things... So
1: one of the things, I'm just want to talk about this for one second. One of the things I really try to help my clients understand is the cognitive dissonance that is created in moments like this and in situations like this. And for those of us who don't know cognitive dissonance, it's when you have two such strongly held values or needs that are in conflict that you're immobilized because you can't decide between them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I lived in a constant place of cognitive dissonance for years. That's what it did to me because I, and this is why I have some, for for me, gaslighting and boundaries and values, you cannot, you cannot unweave them. They are like a three weird, anyways, they're, they're connected because we have to understand that oftentimes the way we thought we were going to live out a value has to change, right? So let's use one example, family family is typically defined role-based mom and dad and 2.3 kids I had to redefine it and be like family is not role-based it's values-based so what what does family what do I want family to mean I had to release what I had believed it to be and had to redefine it for myself so that I could reclaim this value of family and family meant safety honesty laughter all of these things that I was like huh I can't have that (laughs) if I, but what I did, because I was in that place of cognitive dissonance, you asked, what did, what did that do to me? What it did is, well, he was sentenced to seven years and was going to serve about six. So what did I do? I kicked that can down the road. That's what I did for years. In fact, for four years, I kicked that can down the road, right? Because that first year he did everything so perfectly. He ordered all the workbooks. He went to five meetings a week between our therapist, his specialist, y'all, who he snowed. This person worked specifically with sex offenders. Uh, a Celebrate Recovery group, which is a Christian 12-step group. And then, t- I don't know, two other two other things. I can't remember anymore. Perfect. Poster, poster boy recovery. And then he started serving, and I'm serving his time. And that was a whole thing. He would email me his check-ins every week. The clockwork his sobriety i remember one time this is the kind of stuff i think you know, again with with people who are doing gaslighting behaviors you've got different levels of awareness i think he was very aware of the things that he was doing because one time he emailed me a slip that he had while he was in prison and of course i thought well of course this means he's working good recovery because i'd have no way of knowing that he did this so him confessing this to me is actually a good thing, right? So anyways, I would go and I would visit him. I thought I was doing the right thing by hauling my two kids into <laughs> prison every week to go visit their dad to maintain attachment. And then trigger warning again, four years in of that, that routine, strangers coming up to me when I would go and visit him being like, you're so-and-so's wife. And I'd be like, yes, I am. And would be like, he's so amazing. He's helping me so much. All of these different things. He just went, he's such a good guy. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, side note too. My like ex would be connecting me with other women who needed support because of the friends of guys that he was becoming friends with. Yeah. I'm a coach at this point. I'm already leading groups and all that kind of stuff. I have a group that night. My mom sits me down and says, Sarah, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And she's, I need to tell you about my nephew and I'm like shit what's going on and she's like well he told his mom about abuse that he endured at the hands of your your husband my then husband it had taken him a very long time to do that and there, there was one point early early on where I had an inkling had an inkling that something had happened. And so I confronted my ex about it, my then husband, my ex, and he's there, I, I promise I never did anything to our children. <laughs> and I was like, our children, huh? What about what about my nephew? And his face just went, because his oops, because his like workaround didn't work. And so I went and I I went to my nephew and I'm like you don't have to tell me what. I just want to know if something was involved, if, if he ever involved you in anything. And he's like, yes, he did. And from that, I never pushed my nephew again. And this was before I had had my disclosure. So in my disclosure, my ex gave me like one small thing that in and of itself, again, I could have, I, but I, that could have been enough. And, and listen, there are times when I've had clients that that was enough for them just discovering that something quote unquote small had happened was enough for them. And I would shame myself, but I was already bought in. I was already bought into this redemption story and all of these types of things. So the fact that it was small enough to be something that would register, but not so bad that I would give that it would be enough to break me because I'd already bought in. He knew exactly what he was doing by confessing that one small thing. So I looked at him, I said, you need to figure your shit out because this is not okay. <laughs> and then I trusted that he was going to figure his shit out. Because it was horrible, but I had already at this point, the dribbling disclosures that we go through, like at first it was just pornography and then it was this behavior and then it was this, be- like, as you, you become desensitized.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So on it one hand, you got this buy-in. With-
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. On this one hand, you got this buy in and the longer you're in it, the more you're like buying in because you've invested time and energy and your life and your emotions and your hard work. And on the other end, you're becoming desensitized to the shit that you're hearing. Yep. Yep. That's what it was for me for four years. And at that point, my mom said it was a lot more and that my nephew had said it had been going on for about four years when he was a teenager. So I emailed my, my then husband, because that's the way we communicated. And I was like, Hey, I thought you told me everything. <laughs> Cause he had told me for years that he had told me everything. And I wasn't allowed to have a, a polygraph because of the legal stuff around. He whatever. I was, at least that's why I was told. And again, I was super naive when everything first happened. I emailed him. He called me the next day because it's too late to call me call me the next day. And he's like, Sarah, what's going on? My, my, my ex, Sarah, what's going on? I promise I've told you everything. What, what's this cryptic email about? And I'm like, you told me everything, huh? Well, my nephew has shared about what has happened with his mother and his mother told my mother and my mother told me. Silence on the other end of the line. And then he says, I think I'm going to be sick and hangs up. And then he did one of the stupidest things I think he's ever done. He hand wrote a disclosure that he sent to me. And the very first lines were, make sure you have your support people around you as you read this letter, because I'm going to give you a disclosure about the things that I've done to your nephew. And also, I will never do this again without the support of a
0: therapist. Oh, like, poor guy. Poor him. a sacrifice he, to take that time to give that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I just can't,
1: I can't like deal without getting sassy sometimes, but he did. He gave me a disclosure of all the things that he'd done and it was horrific. And I kept that thing for years, for years and years. And it came in handy because when I tried, when I served his ass in jail, <laughs> which is fun. I didn't serve him somebody, but. He tried to write back and and say that he wasn't going to sign what I had served him with because it was full custody and all of these things. And he's, I think I can get partial custody. And I'm like, okay, good luck with that. Let's go ahead and let's go to court and I'll pull up. You remember that little letter you sent me? Remember that little letter? I have no problems bringing that in for evidence. Because I couldn't, other than that, he knew I couldn't do anything about it. My nephew was at the age where he would have to report himself. I tried. I marched myself down to the Austin Police Department. I was like, I want to report a crime. (laughs) And I tried, and they're like, well, first of all, ma'am, this is, this happened in California, so not the right area. And secondly, the victim is above a certain age, and they would have to report themselves. I was powerless to do anything about that. He's never served time for those crimes that he did to that boy. And... That's a hard part of my story. But once I found out about that, I wanna say the, the, I don't know if if you've ever heard, and and I'm sure you can relate, and I'm not sure how you describe it to your clients, but for me, there's like the first time the switch is like, I'm done, right? And you know you're done, but then it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. (laughs) Like until it's the final, until it's the final, then it never gets touched again, right? One would think that would be enough, but at this point, I'm four years in, I'm like, what is this going to mean for my professional? There was so much stuff that was thrown into conflict because I had been coming from this point of I'm this person whose husband's in recovery and all of these things. And now I'm this divorce. There were so many different things. Yeah. That continued to put me in conflict, even though in my soul, in my being, I knew I was done, but I needed all of the parts to get in alignment. And that takes some time often. Yeah. Right. And bless, bless my parents <laughs> and, right. and bless my friends. Like my, oh my, my I remember my, my mom to
0: heaven just for that, right?
1: Like my mom at one point said, cause my parents, that's a whole nother story of the level of support that they gave me. I, my kids and I don't know what would have happened to us if I hadn't had my parents. Amen. We, and, and in a nutshell, we lived with them for six years. That in itself, they moved from Wisconsin to Texas and left their community and their home to support me and my kids. So many times when I'm talking to my clients at different places, I can say I get it. Yeah, I know what it's like to, to pay for my food with food stamps. I, I did that for probably a year, maybe two years, right? Like, I have seen the depths. I definitely have been there. But um, she said, if you stay with him, I can't continue to support you. <laughs> and it was like one of the only times. And I was really mad at her at first for saying that. But she was right to say that. Because I had my my friends who were like when I was trying to get all my shit in alignment, they would say, like, cause I, I remember asking one of my friends specifically, Will you still be my friend if I choose to stay with him? Mm. Cause I was trying to get everything in alignment. Yeah. Right? It was just like wanting to be seen where I was at
0: mm.
1: and the struggle of it.
0: Mm.
1: But being in such big conflict and kind of figuring out who 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 would be with me no matter what. Yeah. And and she was like, Sarah, of course, I love you and I'll be with you no matter what. And I trust that you're going to figure this out. It's invaluable. And I did figure it out. There were some some key points. And I think one of them that you and I talked offline before. Before we started recording that I'll I'll share right now. It really informs a lot of the work that I do and the reasons I've made the programs I've made the way they are. And that's about finding our own agency again and taking the focus off of the other person, because that's there's only so much we can know about the other person. Then shifting the focus onto ourselves. Like I tell people all the time, imagine a pie chart of where your focus is and your focus needs to at least be 51 percent you. At least it should actually be more, but, but that's what we got to at least try to start with, right? Like it doesn't mean don't, don't try to understand where the other person, but we've got to start looking at, I've got to trust myself. I've got to learn how to hear my voice and my gut and all of these things. Again, it, it's where it's got to be and allowing ourselves to ask the questions, ask the hard questions and raise our bar, right? Because for so many of us, our bars have been so, Again, between the buy-in and the desensitization and, and the gaslighting, religiously, culturally, and our marriages, like our bars are like on the ground. In fact, I've had one, one client.
0: It, you use the analogy of, yeah, it's the bar so low, we're playing limbo. Exactly. And I love that because you're bending and contorting yourself. Exactly. Losing yourself to get yes. under that bar.
1: I remember one client saying, Sarah, my bar is so low, like I've dug a hole in the ground. And it's actually like below ground, right? And that's just, it's what happens. But so what happened for me is my ex sent me a letter that he wanted me to give to my sister because supposedly he didn't have her address, fully, fully knowing I would read the letter. And it was a letter attempting to make amends, maybe not make amends, at least take responsibility and apologize for what he had done to her son. And it was a really well-crafted letter. I'm not going to lie. Like if you were to take a textbook, how do you say things in in a way to try to begin reparation? That was the letter. And I looked at it for probably two weeks. I, I almost made myself crazy because my focus was almost entirely on him. He's either a full-on sociopath to write a letter like that, or he's like the perfect guy in recovery. And I, how am I supposed to know? He's in prison. How am I supposed to know what it is? Meanwhile, I'm, I'm going to give you one little thing that I did, one of the kick the can things that I did. One of the things I was terrified of, terrified, when I would think about him being released from prison and coming home, because that's what I had committed to doing up until then, right? like, what am I going to do? Am I going to put locks on my kids' bedroom doors? How am I going to know that they're safe? How can I have that guarantee? Because in my gut, I knew I didn't feel safe with that man. I knew I didn't feel safe. I knew in my bones I didn't feel safe. But I would say to myself, you know what? When it gets closer to his time of release, I'll work on that in therapy because that's my fear. That's what I did to myself. I kicked that can down the road and said, I'll deal with it then. Right? And again, and it's this is- back,
0: And it's back to the, something must be wrong with me. It's my fear. It's my problem. I need exactly. to myself out.
1: Exactly. Now, and again, some of this, if we go all the way back to the beginning of, after my, my discovery, the first books that I read were all these super religious books about people that had stayed in their marriage. And so I felt pressured to do the same thing. Yeah, I felt pressured. I wouldn't be a good Christian. I wouldn't be a good this or that or all of these different things until that moment where my mom told me about my nephew and I said, fuck this. I'm questioning. I'm discarding everything. Everything I have thought I have known to be true. My religion, my identity, everything. I am discarding it and I'm going to look at each one with a fine tooth. I'm going to pick through that with a fine tooth comb. I'll keep what I really believe about myself and how I want to live and all of these things, I'm going to throw the rest out because I don't trust a single thing, not a single thing. And so I started that process and that's what I was doing while well, I was also trying to figure out what about, right? So so here I am in this moment, I'm, I'm learning more about myself. I'm learning to trust and listen and ask these questions from this viewpoint of, I am not going to take anything for granted. I'm not just going to say, I don't, I don't have to understand things. It just takes faith. No, I'm not going to dismiss my questions anymore by saying it just takes faith. If I don't understand something, if I question something, I could I keep on questioning it. I keep on questioning it. I keep on questioning it. And then I bring it back to how does this feel with me? How does it feel in my bones? How does this feel in my gut? And when I looked at that letter for two weeks, thinking mostly only about him, I had this aha moment when I was like, again, sorry, I have not been doing this swear word like you can cut them out or whatever, but I've not been doing trigger warnings about swear words or swear wo- word warning. I was that like, word. who the fuck stays in a relationship when it's a legitimate question whether or not your person is a sociopath? Like, that shouldn't be one of the things that we're questioning about our, about our intimate partner. Like, huh? I wonder, they might be, they might be a sociopath. But willing to, we're... like, no.
0: Try and figure this out.
1: Yeah. Right, like, no. And that that was like when the final switch For the most part, I don't remember exactly the timeline because a lot of this was quite a while ago now. I do know for me, one of the things that grounded me throughout my divorce process was anytime I started to doubt my decision, I would ask myself, because I knew knew by then my top need and the one I was not willing to compromise or sacrifice anymore was safety. I knew that. I had resolved that one. (laughs) It became the top of the list. And so I would ask myself, can I be in relationship with this person and feel safe? Not do I love this person? Not can I imagine a future with not any of that stuff? It was, can I be in relationship with this person and feel safe? And the answer was always no. Always. There was never once that it was, yes, I can feel safe. It was always no. I'm not going to feel safe with this person. And that would ground me. I'm doing the right thing because I refuse to live.
0: In a place that is not safe for me and my kids. I'm just letting that. I'm just letting that mm-hmm. sit there. We get so caught up in the shoulds. I should love him. I should forgive. Mm-hmm. I should be Christ like. Mm-hmm. I and I can make this work. And look, you and I both know women are freaking badasses. We can. Oh, we can make anything. We could. We can make anything work. It's not. It's not a matter of can I do this thing. You can. Yep. <clears throat>
1: I remember one of my clients saying after her husband went into his third relapse saying, I think, I think I have it in me to do this one more time, but I don't want to.
0: Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Yeah. And that's the whole coming back to you. Exactly. The whole of, you know what? Yes and no.
1: Yes. I mean,
0: I could probably
1: eat, a whole dozen donuts in one sitting doesn't mean i sh doesn't mean i should
0: <laughs>
1: right like like no i think women are notoriously i think men do it too but i think it's extra for women that we're notorious for shitting all over ourselves and that's basically self-gaslighting trying to convince ourselves to feel or believe or think a certain way that we you just said don't
0: something i've heard you talk about this before too but When you were taking your kids to see him in prison and under the caveat that this is how I help my kids stay connected and it's the right Mm -hmm. thing to do, would you be willing to share what was your, besides helping them stay connected to their father, as you look back on that, I've heard you say, gosh, I regret that. Mm -hmm. Why?
1: Because it's traumatic. Right, like side note. I just do want to clarify. I don't think they've seen their dad since I found out about my nephew, mm. so that that stopped. Mm. Um, I do think. Well, I do think maybe there were a few times that their grandpa took took them, but yeah. So just want to put that out there first because I barely saw him after that. But why do I regret it? Uh, like I said, first of all, because it is traumatic, right? Like both of my kids have. They're they're amazing. They are some of the most amazing human beings, emotionally intelligent, compassionate, like all of, all of these things, just beautiful, beautiful humans. And they both have issues. How could you not, right? Your dad gets ripped out of your life at seven and 11. How could you not have attachment issues? My younger one actually is probably is better. I would say quote unquote better because they're less aware than my older one. My older one and I both have really bad memories. (laughs) It's part of the the CPTSD. Thank you. The gift that keeps on giving. But like the other day, I asked my son, I used to sing him the song Beautiful Boy by John Lennon all the time when he was really, really young, like every night. And something reminded me of it. I sent it to him. I'm like, do you remember when I used to sing this to you? And he's like, yeah, I remember. He's 19. And that was when he was two and three. I'm like, that's amazing. Because I hardly remember anything from. Anyways, so trauma. That's the biggest reason. We see it in movies. And all of this, I think we're desensitized to maybe hearing or thinking of somebody taking somebody to go visit somebody in prison. But every weekend, I drove my kids for an hour down to Bastrop, down this long line. You see the fences and the barbed wire on top, and then you sit in a room with all of these other people, go through a metal detector, walk down this long hall, and then go into a waiting room where there's just all of these inmates all over the place and you make your inmate food in the microwave because it's like the highlight of the week where they get to have their hamburger heated up in the mic right and they sit in these very uncomfortable chairs for a few hours while they talk to their dad and or listen to him and I talk like what is Again, I thought I was doing the right thing because Sue Johnson, attachments, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, and again, it doesn't also happen in a vacuum because I'm getting messages from him because he was reading all of this stuff while he was in prison. You could probably b- basically got like a degree while he was in prison reading all this stuff and telling me all, all the great ways that I'm, I'm helping them maintain attachments with their dad and how that important that is to the development of this and that. And so- being gaslit, right? A kid needs yeah. one secure attachment, That's one, it. one to learn healthy attachment styles.
0: Yep. Yep. It, it's enough, <laughs> is enough. It is well, enough. What I want my listeners to hear in you explaining that regret and why you can now look back and have total compassion for yourself because you do what yeah. you know. But ultimately, it's still this same, like, we're ignoring. The reality, the the reality picture. He is in prison, the environment of prison, the trauma of this experience. But all of that gets shoved aside because ultimately this so-called attachment that he is also saying needs to happen is taking precedence over reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, mm-hmm. That's why it's um, so easy to get stuck I- in. Yeah, sure. What did that look like when you started to notice this isn't helpful? I mean, again, it's part of why
1: I do what I do, right? So that these things that I had to learn on my own, people, Uh people don't have to learn on their own, right? So what I had to learn on my own was actually after my ex was released from prison, both of my kids, my oldest was now in high school, my youngest was now in middle school, had psychosomatic meltdowns. My youngest missed a whole week of school because of migraines. My oldest had a panic attack where I had to drive the 15 minutes that it took to get from my home to his school, literally saying, one, two, helping him breathe. One, two, three in, one, two, three out. If I stopped, he would stop breathing. So for 15 minutes while I drove, that's all I did. And he did not go back to school the rest of that year. He barely came out of his room for the rest of that year. So my youngest, again, being a little bit more resilient, only missed a week of school with migraines, which he's never, never had before, has never had since. They were terrified that their dad had been released from prison because of him and because of the conflict that they felt about him. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest part. And that was the aha for me because my son, again, my kids are super intelligent as well. And because I've worked so hard with them about their emotions, they're also very emotionally intelligent. And as a middle schooler, I was having a conversation with my son, talking to him about why he was missing school. And he's like, well, I'm so confused because he's my dad, but I don't think I can trust him. I realized in that moment, this, as an adult, I struggled with that. And I remember thinking, I wish somebody could just tell me whether or not he was safe and make this decision for me. I wish somebody could do that because this is the fucking hardest decision I have ever had to make. And so I said, you know what? I will make this decision for my son because I can. Yes. And I stepped in and I said, this is what we're going to do. And I set up some super strict boundaries, super, super strict, because what set it off was my ex, one of the first things that he did, his dad gave him a phone and he called my son and said, I'm so excited. I'm going to get to have pizza tonight and all of these different things. Migraine missed a week of school. He's my dad, but I don't think I can trust him. So I stepped in. I stepped in. He's not safe. And I had a conversation with him that said, imagine the fence around our house and you've got a gate and we let safe people in. We keep dangerous people out. So what do you do when somebody comes to the gate and you don't know if they're safe? You don't let them in. We don't have to let people in because we're not sure that they're dangerous. That's that low bar again. That shouldn't be the bar. The bar should be, I know you're safe. Not I question whether or not you're safe. I know you're safe. Those are the only people we let in. Why? Like, I'm getting emotional. Why do we make these concessions? Because we love them? That's not enough. Safety should be the only thing that unlocks our gate. Especially if we have kids.
0: Especially if we have children who do not have the developed brain and capacity to make these decisions.
1: Hard. That's why I regret it, right? I think that there are, I think I could have had my process of weaning them off of attachment with their dad without having had to take them to prison every week for what, three years, four years, however long it was, right? They don't remember a lot of it. I do. I remember pretty much every different prison I took them to because it was probably at least two or three.
0: Well, and yeah, it's a, it's a movie. Yeah, it's a lifetime movie. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Well, it is. And you've talked about your boys enough that on the other side of this, I want to also give my listeners hope. Yes, absolutely. Because I can share very similar, even though mine wasn't, well, he was in jail a few times <laughs> different reasons, but there's these traumatic experiences that our children have. We handle things because we do what we know. And mm-hmm. the repair, like that is the magic. Yes. And as you, and I know you have, consciously work on that repairing, Yep. beautiful things come of that. Absolutely. And I have seen it in my children. I continue to see it in my children. And I know you do too. I just want to point that out and give that hope because I think every woman that I've ever worked with. We have some sort of regret, especially when it comes to our children. Yes. And I cannot stress enough. The power is in the repair. hundred percent. Right. Like to the point where, you know, my, my youngest, the
1: last couple of years of his high school, he's the second year out of high school. But when he was in three years being in high school, he was like meeting with friends, like before school to like low-key coach them on their like relationships and <laughs> stuff. Like teaching them about gaslighting and boundaries and like all of these things. And just seeing the way they relate with their friends, the connection that we have, like despite all the things that we went through, like we never, that that time, the horrible season when your relationships with your kids is just so hard. Like I never had that. Like my relationship with my boys has always been beautiful. We are super close and we nerd out and play games and they talk to me about real things. And I, I remember when my youngest got together with one of his girlfriends, he asked me about a month and he's like, mom, what are some things I can do to nurture a healthy relationship with me? He was like 17 at the time or something like that, 17, maybe maybe 18. So to your point, they weren't ruined. And it's at both and they weren't ruined by this because we did therapy because i worked intentionally with them to repair to build safety to build communication to build connection all the things that i know help resolve trauma because mm-hmm. trauma only r- kind of ruins if it stays stuck yes. so i did things to help them move through the trauma that had that they had experienced so it's both and i have regret and we're doing a, we're doing great I have a, a great second marriage. I have an amazing relationship with my boys. Right, I'm good. I, I love my job. If I won the multi, whatever, huge lottery here in Texas, like I would still do what I do. I love what I do. So I'm good. And I went to, through hell and back. I was in there for a while. I didn't, it wasn't just like one day. I walked through that place for a while and I made that place my 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 home for a hot minute
0: that's beautiful i love that okay so as we wrap up and i girl you and i really can talk for i know i'm thinking about a few specific clients who can share Mm -hmm. some this the story is very similar Mm -hmm. what are some final thoughts that you would want them to know about their situation about their options about their hope? I mean one I would say, i see you
1: there's there's no way unless you've walked through it to understand the level of conflict internally, especially when it's your intimate partner because you've loved you've you loved this person and you've given like i I see you number one number two, don't kick the can down the road. I think that's what I would say don't kick the can down the road. If things are coming up for you, pay attention. Give yourself the gift of saying, I don't have to, because that's what I did. Basically, by kicking the can down the road, I carried that for years. You don't have to carry it for years, right? Don't. If something is bothering you, don't minimize it. Don't dismiss it. Treat it there's a, a, a phrase that we, I use in my practice. It's our sacred self-responsibility. And that's what I would say. It is your sacred, it's sacred to take on the responsibility for your own self-health and worth and all of this. Like, it is not, like, all the things that we've been gaslit around that, it's none of that. It is our sacred self-responsibility to say, I, not only do I not want to carry that, I shouldn't carry that. I don't like to use the word should, but I should, (laughs) if I'm giving myself permission to stand in the place of my sacred self-responsibility, I won't carry that, right? It will take a while to unpack it and that's okay. Expect it to be hard, but expect to find freedom like you never knew once you do.
0: Amen to that. You will absolutely find freedom and empowerment like you have never known before. Mm. Sarah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay. Mm-hmm. We are definitely going to have you back and we're going to talk more about the deconstructing the gaslighting and all so important those little pieces that you shared throughout your story that keep us sucked in, that keep us reality. So I'm really looking forward to that and looking forward to letting these listeners access to your program. Mm. Ladies, 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 you are divorced. And I was telling Sarah this the other day, I know you're divorced and you are not in that relationship, but I cannot. And I know Sarah, you shared this with me. You cannot stress enough how important it is for you to still understand these behaviors, these methods, these tactics, because you will repeat and I know none of you want to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know none of you want to repeat that. And not just in romantic relationships, but with friends, with mm-hmm. jobs, jobs and other cultures that you're involved in this is amazing, amazing work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite things ever was one of my former clients who told me after she divorced and was dating again, who said, you know what? Thanks to the things that I've learned through your gaslighting stuff, ins- instead of well, I, what she says, I only went on one date with this guy instead of getting his name tattooed on my ass and marrying yep. him. She was able to see how the things were happening and she wouldn't have seen them before. It's important. It's important. Very important. So. All right, girl. Thank you, Amy. Thank you.